I want you to join me in 2 Kings chapter number 6. The message is called Seeing the Unseen, and it is a familiar passage of Scripture to a lot that are in the room, but I have already seen some things in this passage this morning that I had never seen before, that if uh, the Lord will grant me grace, um, we'll be able to share with you this morning. So if you're physically able, one of the things I like to do is invite you to stand at the opening passage of Scripture. We don't try to be super spiritual, but it's just a reminder by our posture that we are reading the very words that God preserved down through the generations. Uh, just yesterday, I believe it was William Tyndale's, the anniversary, that he gave his life burned alive at the stake so that we might have a copy of the scriptures in our language. And so we want to revere the word of God as generations past have done so and to recognize what an awesome, inestimable privilege it is for us to be have a, to have a copy of God's word in our language. And so we're going to stand and honor it. In 2 Kings chapter number 6, look with me in verse number 8. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place will, shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. And thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled. Because of this thing, and he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is that I may send and seize him. It was told the king, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. You could have shouted right there and it wouldn't have bothered me a bit. Then Elisha prayed and said, Oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way and this is not the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those, with whom you, uh, those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them. 
that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast, and when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master, and almost as a footnote, and the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. You can be seated. The whole passage moves us in and out of this principle of seeing and not seeing. Seeing and not seeing. And part of the life that we are journeying through as pilgrims, as followers of Jesus, requires that we see the unseen. This is what Pastor Dustin mentioned in his prayer. This is faith. We are blessed to have minds. We are blessed to have logic. We are blessed to have reason. We are blessed to have all sorts of resources that make information come at us in waves. We have technology. We have industry. We have luxury. We have opulence. We have wealth in this country. I'm not ashamed of any of those things because I don't want them to own my heart, and they're a part of living in American culture. But none of those things are sufficient to take us where God wants to take us. None of those things are, are sufficient in and of themselves to bring us into the fullness of what it means to live by faith as followers of Jesus Christ. If that is ever going to be happening in our lives on a continual basis, there is a must that has to occur in our life. What is that must? We must be able to see the unseen. So much of the mystical part of Christianity has been stripped away, especially in the last two centuries, especially in Western culture, especially, especially in a post-enlightenment uh, generations. It's been stripped away. And so we have come to a place in our, our, our faith even, in our churches, in our, our, our thinking as Christians, as followers of the sovereign God and his son, Jesus Christ, we've come to that place where we are suspicious of what we can't explain or what we don't understand. And so skeptical can we be that we will dismiss it out of hand and look for things that are within our ability to define and our ability to control. I have, um, over the last few years, as most of you would know if you've been around here for a while, I've repented of that kind of mindset. I've repented of the presumption and the pride that says, if I don't understand it, it must not be true. If I can't explain it, it certainly is not true. And if I haven't experienced it, well, all those that presumably have are fraudulent. You see, my friends, there is a, a tendency in us to make so much of life and theology and our relationship with God and our faith, so much of it to orbit around us as if our ability to live it out, to explain it, to experience it, or to understand it, or the inability to do that is what validates something or invalidates something. I want to tell you something. The kingdom orbits around Jesus, and it was well into its orbit before I ever drew my first breath. And so this morning, I want to learn from Elisha. I want to learn from his servant. I want to learn from the king of Israel. I want to learn from the army of Samaria. And I want to learn from this wicked king with whom our story opens this morning. I want to talk to you about seeing the unseen. And I want to begin with this thought. The power to see when life is in turmoil. Don't say amen, but how many of you would have to say, if you could, amen to the reality that your life's in turmoil right now? You don't have to say it out loud. You probably at least have a chunk of your life that's a little topsy-turvy. 
And so when we're thinking about life in turmoil, we're going to see this battle scene. We're going to see this conflict. We're going to see this war. And in that, in that picture of war, I want you to realize there's some elements that need to be laid over my life and your life. And we've got to figure out how do we fight in order to bring glory to Jesus and to accomplish his purposes in our life. Well, it's going to require the power to see. Because life is going to be in turmoil in one place or another, probably for the rest of your days. And if you don't see the unseen, then you're going to be one of those pinata party people. Say, what are you talking about, Jeff? Pinata parties are fun. I'm going to get to the text in a minute, I promise. I've been sitting in a front row for like 10 sessions of preaching. So I've got like, the well is flowing this morning. But we took Alicia and Landon to some friend's house a few years ago, and they had a pinata party. And pinatas are fun because the person swinging the stick is at a disadvantage. Inside that wonderful paper mache donkey or SpongeBob or whatever it might be hanging from that string, inside of that is a vault of goodies filled with the richest treasures that four and five year olds love to sink their teeth into. And so they take this, it's kind of cruel when you think about it. They take a small child and they blind him or her. And they put a stick in his hand, and they say, there's some wonderful things out there for you, but you have to find it, and you've got to grope, and you've got to flail in the dark, and you can't see a thing, so start swinging, son, and all the adults stand back, and we laugh at the children. (laughs) Kind of cruel, isn't it? And so the kids are swinging, and they're blindfolding, and we've all seen the America's Funniest videos where some yahoo gets a little too close and catches a stick in a place where he didn't want to catch it, and we know how that works. But I think of that, and the whole point is this. They're trying to win something that they, they can't see what they're fighting against. They can't see where they're going. They don't know where they are, and they're swinging a stick blindly, hoping something good will come to them. A lot of people are living the Christian life like that. Battle coming against you, but you're blindfolded by reason and you're blindfolded by, by explanation and you're blindfolded by pride and blindfolded by a presumption of how things ought to be. And you're swinging a stick, trying to do something good, trying to receive something good, but you're about as helpless as a person at a pinata party. So when we think of this, we've got to learn how to fight. So let's get into the text. The reality of the battle is seen in verse number eight. The Bible says, once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel... He got his generals, he got his secretary of defense, he gets them in the war room, and he says, here's where we're going to attack. At such and such a place, we're going to come up against Israel in the northern part. We're going to come up against them, and we're going to fight. And so it's a very simple paradigm here. It's a context of war, and the Syrians and the Israelites were constantly, they were regular opponents of one another throughout Israel's history. And here is a season where active wars and battles are taking place. And so the king of Syria says, I think I see a vulnerable point, and we're going to come against them here. And that's what the enemy does. The enemy is always seeking an advantage against God's people, and that's typified here by the reality of this battle. But go down into verse number 9. I'm going to move through this part a little more quickly. Look at the resistance to the battle, because if the battle's coming against us, and if you don't believe it's coming against you, child of God, you're naive, you need to take off your blindfold. You're swinging a stick in the dark, and so the resistance to the battle is important. Now look at how Israel fights back. The man of God 
sent word to the king of Israel, and here's the word that he sent. Beware that you don't pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And then the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God had told him. And uh, thus Elisha used to warn the king so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. So this was not a one-time occurrence. Let me, let me strip it away from some of the, uh, the, the flowery speech there. So Elisha, the prophet of God in Israel, is in holy communion with God. It wasn't a very robust spiritual time for Israel. Elisha is one of the prophets that has had to do some very difficult things. He had a, a, a powerful ministry full of miracles. He, he did twice as many as his forerunner, Elijah, and he was a mighty prophet of God, but it was not a great spiritual time for Israel. And so at this time, Elisha would have been one of the rare individuals that is just in communion with God. And in that communion with God, God begins to speak to Elisha. And I, we're not given the conversation, but it might have gone something like this. Elisha, the enemy's coming against you and your people. And I know exactly where he's going, and I'm going to tell you where he's going, and I want you to entrust this information to your king so that the king might defend my people from this wicked enemy. And so Elisha has this discernment, and he is now able to resist the war. And what is probably more noteworthy in our generation is the fact that the government listened to the, the spiritual representative. The governmental leader, the king, listened to the spiritual leader. Uh, that's no small thing. And by the way, that, that, that works really well for a country. Blessed is the country whose nation is the Lord. And when, when the church is informing the government, it is so much better for those people. Now, I, I get it. I know it's an election year, so I'll resist the temptation. But the, the, the thought here is this, that God speaks to his people, and his people have a responsibility to look out for the welfare of their countrymen, and that's what was going on there. And so the resistance was a spiritual resistance in a military battle. Now, the warning came. So the king of Israel sets up his military men to fight in the area where the king of Syria had determined he would exploit a vulnerability. And this happened at least three times. It says not just once or twice. It seemed to happen multiple times. And so let's see how the enemy responds when he can't beat God's people. So go down into verse number 11, and we see the relentlessness of the battle because we'd like to think that he just said, oh, shucks, and went home. But that's not how the enemy plays. And so we see a frustrated enemy in verse number 11. Now, I love this. I don't mind. I, I'm, I don't have any sympathy for the devil. I, I don't mind just kind of celebrating when the enemy gets his backside handed to him, and that's what happens here, verse 11. The mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. Because of what thing? Because he couldn't win. And he called his servants and said to them, now watch this. He says, who in my cabinet is a traitor. Who's telling Israel about our war strategy? Because there is no other explanation. He's thinking in the natural. He doesn't realize he's thinking and trying to process naturally what God is doing spiritually. So no wonder he's frustrated. And then one guy in the, in the king's ranks, he, he says to him, uh, my king, it isn't any of us. We're loyal to you, but there's a guy in Israel. He's a preacher he does some pretty incredible things. We don't know what to do about him, but he has got a direct line to the God of Israel. And anything you're saying, even in the privacy of your own bedroom, their God makes it known to that prophet. That prophet makes it known to that king. And we can't win. And so there's this boiling frustration going on. Uh, I'd just like to say this. I hope hell knows your name. I'm serious. Hell ought to know your name. 
The enemy ought to say, well, when this lady gets on her knees, her Lord speaks to her and she acts on it. And whether it's a young person, a high school student, a college-age student, I'm going to tell you something. In the days to come, we have to live lives that are marked with not only the Word of God, which is always the foundation. But Paul said, I did not come to you in word only, but I came in demonstration of the Spirit's power. And so Elisha was getting the word of the Lord and he's operating in the power of the Lord and the enemy knew exactly what his name was. In verse number 13, the frustrated enemy became a focused enemy because he does not give up. So look at what the king said. The king said, go and see where Elisha is that I may send and seize him. And somebody said he's in Dothan. You see, the enemy said, well, if Elisha's the problem, then let's forget about the king right now. Let's forget about his military right now. Let's go straight to the source and let's undermine this prophet who has the ability to see the unseen. Let's come against the one who seems to have that that abiding in the God of Israel and let's just take him out because even the enemy knows that there are significant and strategically placed people in the kingdom And if he can topple that individual, topple that woman of God, topple that man of God, topple that godly grandparent or that godly college student, if he can just wreck them, then there will be a domino effect. So the king of Israel, he says, excuse me, the king of Syria says, well, forget the military strategy right now. Let's just focus on one guy. And so he lasers in on one individual. I am not going to pat you on the head this morning. Some of you have set your life for the glory of Jesus Christ. You have moved in it. You are not turning back. Your mind is made up. You're not praying about whether or not you should live a life that is bound for the glory of Jesus. You're sacrificial. You're submissive. You are strategic. You're you're an individual who's disciplined his or her life. You know that your life is all about Jesus, and you long for more of his work and his appearance and his presence in your life. And so you pant and you thirst and you hunger after Christ. And I want to tell you something. You are one of the ones that the enemy knows your name and he will at all costs, he will come against an individual like that. Some of you are experiencing some deep difficulties in life, not because God's upset with you, but because the enemy's upset with you. And so he does come against us at times as he is strategically targeting Elisha here. So the enemy was furious. So look in verse number 14. He's a frustrated, focused, and a furious enemy. So they leave the boardroom. They start drawing up some battle plans. And the Bible says that the king of Syria sent horses and chariots and a great army and came and surrounded, came by night and surrounded Dothan. Why? Because Elisha's there. Now, just just read verse 14 again. I mean, this sounds more like a special ops mission. You get one or two guys that are really just your top-notch you know, so, uh, soldiers, and they could take care of Elisha, right? But the king already knows the odds are stacked against him. So he sends horses, he sends chariots, and he sends a great army for one little prophet coming against them. Oh, man, I just think about that. I, I, you know, we, we live in a day and an age where everything has to be impressive. We live it where we got to have a bold font, underlined, neon. We, we live in a day where it's got to be high definition. It's got to be marketed. It's got to be branded. I get all of that. That is the world we live in. But here's one little prophet with an anointed prayer life, and we're going to find out his prayers aren't. Uh, Elijah, he gets up on Mount Carmel and says, bring down the fire, God, and boom, that's what Elijah did. Elisha's more like, you know, I, I just picture him washing the dishes. You know, he's washing the dishes, and he's like, yeah, 
uh, there's more with us than, than they're with them. And Lord, if you'll just open up his eyes over there while I finish up this, you know, pan of biscuits. And uh, his prayer life is not Im- impressive, only in its results it's impressive, but it's, it's just amazing. He's a simple man. He's a simple man with a spectacular touch of God on his life. And I would say if we're told in Scripture that Elijah is just a man like we are with the same passions and the same nature, I would say the same thing is true about Elisha. These aren't spiritual superstars. These are submitted servants of God who are connecting with a God who loves to do wondrous things to glorify his name. And so all of the army comes down, and this is where we get to the good part. Go down with me in verses 15 through 17. We have to see the unseen, and part of this is a gift from God, a provision to see when victory is in order. Brothers and sisters, well, let me read the text, and then I'll I'll unpack a few thoughts. Let's start where probably in the natural, in our flesh, a lot of us will be familiar with in verse 15. Uh, The servant has his eyes open, but his eyes are open to panic. So the army of the enemy is surrounding the city, and the servant of the man of God, Elisha's servant, rises early in the morning. He's feeding the chickens. He's doing something. He's getting up early in the morning, and as the sun's just coming out, he goes out, and behold, that means check it out. Watch this. Hey, look, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant says, alas, my master, Elisha, what are we going to do? It's easy to see the panicky stuff, isn't it? Y'all better not be pious with me this morning. I'm going to make you confess. Amen. We see the trouble. We see the odds. We see the opposition. We hear the evil report. We feel the tremors. We experience the shakes. We wonder. We doubt. We fear at times. That is, that is all in our resume. We have all been there. And sometimes life's issues are so overwhelming that we say the exact same thing as Elisha's servant. We say, what are we going to do now? How are we going to overcome Lord, I've got a circumstantial army surrounding my minuscule city and I don't have anything to fight with and I don't feel like I'm going to win and they've got chariots and they've got horses and they've got weaponry and all of these things coming against me and I just don't see how the outcome is ever going to result in my favor. Brothers and sisters, I'm going to tell you something. In your flesh dwelleth no good thing. And the spirit of fear, 100 times out of 100, the spirit of fear does not source itself in your Savior. He does not give us the spirit of fear. That's a non-negotiable statement in Scripture. So we can fear in our flesh. We can fear because there is a natural adrenaline rush, the fight or flight kind of uh, uh, um, physiology in us. I get all of that, but I'm talking about the spirit of fear. I'm talking about a fear that you go to bed with and then you wake up with. I'm talking about a fear that whispers in your ear all sorts of lies all day long. I'm talking about a fear that debilitates you and keeps you from walking in the fullness of all that God has for you. I'm talking about a fear that tells you that you're never enough or that you never have enough resources or that you're not gifted enough or you're not special enough or you're not pretty enough or you're not strong enough or you're not wealthy enough. And so everything else looks big and you look real small. And so many in the body of Christ because of what's going on in our culture for the last 10 years, because of, yes, horizontal chaos. It is. It's a whacked out world, man. It's about to get wackier, by the way. 
This is going to be a jacked up year circumstantially. You write that down. He said, Jeff, you prophesied. Call it whatever you want. It's going to be a jacked up year. There's going to be some messed up stuff going on in the United States of America this year. And if you're not tempted, you're going to say, oh, what am I going to do? Some of y'all were doing it last week where the Dow was just going, oh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? The servant had not yet learned to see beyond the external challenges. And I say it to our discredit, so also has a church not really learned to see beyond the external challenges. When I think of what's going on in the church and other parts of the world and what they're enduring and suffering, and I, I try to stay connected with that. I, I try to follow it online. I have contacts in the Middle East, and we know people in the body of Christ, and what is happening to the church in other areas of the world, and what they're enduring, and how church houses in places like China are exploding, and they have nothing, and they meet under the penalty of death, or at least imprisonment. When we see what's going on in the Middle East and uh, you, you hear just graphic reports that I don't even quite frankly want to speak this morning, graphic reports of what's being done to men and women and children that will not renounce Jesus Christ. And they're, they're, be, they're being just ushered into heaven as martyrs for the Son of God at 13 and 14 years old. Parents having to watch their children be martyred and, and encouraging their children, don't recant while the, while the Muslim's blade is against their throat. Don't recant. Yes, she was, Lord. That is going on all over the world. And sometimes, if I can just take a moment, just to be real, not to be overly critical, but to be real, we come in and we're like, I don't know if I can go back to that church, man. It felt like they could hang meat in there. It was so cold. I, I just don't think that's the church for me. I tell you what, they got acoustic drums up there now. I just, I just don't think Jesus is for that. I don't think the Lord is for that. Pastor doesn't wear a tie. Services go to 1230 and the Methodists are beating us to Piccadilly. Just kidding. Sort of. <laughs> The only reason we need to laugh at this is because it is actually painfully true. Christians, American, I'm just going to keep it to meadow. I'm not preaching to America. I'm talking to us this morning. Um, what causes you to panic and become self-inwardly focused is going to own you if you don't repent. And I don't want to be owned by anything other than Jesus. I don't want to be owned by a spirit of fear that says, if I don't understand it, if I can't control it, if I can't explain it, if I can't predict it, then I want to run from it. I don't want to be owned by a spirit of fear. And the servant just reminds me in certain places of us. What are we going to do? Now, granted, he was in trouble as far as the natural eye could see, but that was the problem. He saw what he saw, but he didn't see what he needed to see. And so let's get there because Elisha saw what needed to be seen. So eyes opened in panic are the servant, but eyes opened in peace is Elisha. And he said, don't be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. I love that. I love the fact that there is a believer who had walked with the Lord a little bit further, a little bit longer than the one he was standing next to, his servant 
was with him through many things, had seen a lot of miracles, had been with Elisha through probably some very powerful encounters with God, but, but the servant was now coming up against something that his faith didn't have a grid for. The, the servant said, okay, I, I believe in our God and he can raise dead people and he can heal sick people and he can make iron to swim and all these different miracles that had taken place in Elisha's life. But, but the servant didn't have the level of faith that said, my God is so great, he can wipe out this entire Syrian army that is surrounding my city. And this is where I get Elisha doing dishes. And I know that's not in the Bible, that's just in my mind, and it's been there for a long time, so I'm sticking with it. So Elisha is just sitting there, and I just picture him looking out the window, and the servant's over here convulsing in panic, and, and, and Elisha's just like, hey, we got this, don't be afraid, it's okay. And he says something that... The servant's going to have to take by faith. Elisha says, hey, there's actually more that are going to fight for us if we need them than there are those that are going to fight against them. Let me just tell you something. That could not be seen yet by the servant. The servant couldn't see that, but Elisha saw it. And so there was something going on that Elisha, the man of God, the, 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 the one with the intimacy with Yahweh, he saw something happening that the nominal believer, the, the servant believer, the one who was just maybe younger in the faith or at least uh, um, not necessarily younger in age but just hadn't journeyed where Elisha had gone, he couldn't see what the other one saw. That's a test of faith. How do you, what do you do? How do you respond when you're around people that are talking about God in ways that are confident, that are bold, that have more exclamation points than question marks, people that are saying, hey, I know the world's going to hell. I understand the aggressive abortion agenda. I see the homosexual movement and the transgender movement and and the moral decay of the United States of America. I see uh, Washington in absolute chaos. I see all of that, but I'm going to tell you something. The back of the story tells me as a child of God, as a follower of Jesus Christ, that at the end, that I'm going to rule and reign with the Son of God, so I guess I'm just not going to give in to panic. Now, how do you respond when you're around people, Christians, that are seeing God in ways that you've never seen them? Because that's what was happening with the servant right here. You know, modern day, reasonable Western believer might have said to Elisha, now, Elisha, I love you, and there's no doubt about it, you've got some communion with God, but I just walked outside And we don't have an army out there. They've got the army. So I'm sorry, but your faith is just pie in the sky by and by. You know, in in any local church, you're going to have various levels of faith that are represented. I want to have the kind of faith. Can I say this, Jesus? Thank you. I want to have the kind of faith that makes people uncomfortable at times. Because, I mean, it's already been quoted today. He's able to do exceeding abundantly above anything I ask or think. Well, why aren't we seeing that? And why are we trying to, and I say we, it's a collective we. It's not every individual, but it's all over. It's rampant in the body of Christ. Why are we trying to cram God down to fit in a nicely packaged religious box? Elisha saw some stuff that the servant didn't see. And his eyes were opened in peace. He just looks at the phone and goes, don't be afraid. We got this. And so look down at verse 17. Elisha didn't want the servant to live off of Elisha's faith. The servant needed his own faith, so Elisha prayed for him. Then Elisha prayed and said, Oh, Lord, please open his eyes so that he can see what I see. Oh, Lord, 
I'm asking you, I'm going to be an intercessor right here, Lord, for someone who does not see what you've shown me. I am going to pray, Lord, will you open his eyes? Because it's going to be really good when he's able to see what you've shown me. I want you to think about this. Not everybody who doesn't get it is a bad guy or a bad girl. Not everybody who doesn't agree with you or see what you see or experience what you experience is a rebel. Reluctance doesn't equal rebellion all the time. You need to remember that along with me. People are sometimes reluctant. They just, listen, Paul, Paul wrote, or no, actually it was John the Baptist. A man can receive nothing except that it come from him from the Lord. And then Paul would write, why, uh, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you have received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In other words, everything you see in the kingdom, every enlightenment that you have, every gift that you are actively walking in, every open door that you have migrated through, everything that you have been granted in the kingdom has come from the Lord. And if he didn't give it, you couldn't have gotten it. And so when we are around other people who don't get it, no matter what the topic might be, no matter whether they're, they're living in that thimble kingdom or that little K kingdom, and you're a big kingdom, big K kingdom lady or a big K kingdom man, the last thing we need to do is get arrogant and, and beat them down. Why don't we be like Elisha and say, Lord, open their eyes because I know if they can see what you've shown me, then they're going to rejoice just like I'm rejoicing. Yes. And so we, we, we don't. We don't turn our noses up at people who may not see things the way that we see them. We love them and we intercede for them. And by the way, when somebody's praying for you to see something, you need to be willing to see it. Because there was something going on here that God wanted the servant to see. He motivated Elisha to pray for him. And then I didn't even finish the verse, verse 17. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man. Yeah, he was younger than Elisha. And he saw. That, that's all it takes. You don't need like 20 hours of classes. You just need a humble heart and the power of God to hit you, and you will start seeing everything differently. When I got saved, I got saved. Oh, here come the rabbit trails. There goes the outline. Here we go. I got saved in 1994, and uh, I had come off a, a week-long binge down in Florida, and my mind was just all messed up. And when I came back from there, I was broke. I had, I had to go to work for two days, and I, I'll never forget the day before I got saved was one of the worst storms we had had in August of 1994. And I was in my apartment and the wind was howling and it was just going crazy and tree hitting on the window. I felt like every demon of hell was coming after me. I didn't know if it was demons or if it was God coming to get me. All I know is I was petrified and I was laying in a fetal position on my bed. And this was my prayer. Jesus, don't come back tonight. Jesus, don't come back tonight. How many of you know the worst thing is not being lost, but being lost and understanding theology? I knew that the son of God, I was tormented by what I had learned because I wouldn't yield to it. And so I'm praying there, and I'm crying and crying. And the next day, thank God, by his grace, Jesus didn't come back, and I, I had another day. And the next day, in a really messy moment with the Lord, I just said, I am tired of running from you. I give you my life. And I was born again. I, I, I went to work later on that afternoon. I promise you, when I walked out the door, I, I am not, it was multicolor. The sky was bluer. The trees were greener. The air was fresher. I, I walked into my workplace. It looked like they had painted the place. They had brought, everything was bright. Why? I was starting to see things as God wanted me to see them. Yes. That life was not doom. Life was not gloom. Life was not gray clouds. But life was hopeful. There was purpose. There was peace. There was something to be passionate about. But I never saw that until what? Until God allowed me 
to see. I think one of the greatest things that we can pray in humility is, Lord, show me what I'm not seeing. Show me what I'm not seeing. And by the way, it's, it's probably not going to be some, you know, boom, you know, all of a sudden you just got it all down. It's, God's probably going to send some people into your life that are going to challenge you on what you believe, challenge you on how you're living. When, when God wants to do something supernatural, he will often employ natural means to get that to you. And so if you're waiting on the Holy Ghost whammy to zzzz, then you're going to be walking on water and stuff, it's probably not going to work that way. God will probably send somebody that really cares for your soul and cares about your walk with Jesus and cares for your growth, and they'll, they'll share with you. And we need to be really careful to say, all right, Lord, I've been praying. Show me what, what I'm not seeing. Open my ears so I can hear you. Elisha did that. By the way, that, that army, God's army, they had been there the whole time. You see, it's not so much that the Lord's adding stuff. He's just making us more aware of what he's already done. And to the degree that we remain aware and engaged in what God has already done and what he's currently doing, friends, that's where we'll start seeing the unseen. So we're going to come down to the very last portion. I see the clock. I appreciate your patience. Um, this is a different type. This is a slightly different nuance. The privilege to see when wisdom is needed. Because God was about to do something amazing, but Elisha was going to have to retain his spiritual focus because was, he was about to be tempted externally to do something that wasn't in the plan of God. And I'll explain as we go. Elisha saw how to handle his emergency. Look down in verse number 18. When the Syrians came down against him, I mean, they just showed up at Dothan to snatch this guy. So when they came down against him, the whole army that was dispatched coming against Elisha, what did Elisha do? He prayed to the Lord and said, please strike this people with blindness. Now, he just prayed for one dude to get his eyes open. Now he's praying for this whole army to get their eyes shut. That's a pretty impressive prayer life. I'm just going to be honest with you. So God strikes them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. It's almost like the Lord is just saying, tell me what you want me to do, Elisha. I'm for you. Just call on my name. Tell me what you want to do. You want me to strike him with blindness? You got it. Boom. You know, I, I think you and I tend to overcomplicate prayer. You know, Jesus walked up to, a, again, a blind man one time, walked up to a blind man and said, what do you want me to do for you? Just looked at the man. Was, Jesus was looking at the man in the eye and said, what do you want me to do for you? I just dare you this week to approach your prayer life and just, just assume that the Lord is offering you that. Hey, what do you want me to do for you? How, how would you like me to interact in your life in ways that bring you great goodness and pleasure and bring me great glory? I mean, it's, it's not like the Lord is trying to hold back his goodness from us. My goodness, he, he opened up his hands and his wrist and his feet and his side and his brow so that the best that he had to offer would be poured forth from that life. And now somehow on the back end of that, 2,000 years later, we think he's up there holding back lesser things. He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up from it for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? But we are approaching the throne like we're, we're coming in front of a foreign diplomat that we have a very narrow appointment with and we got to say and rehearse the right thing. He's the son of God. He's your Lord. He's your king. He is God watching over you. Open our eyes that we'll see this, Lord. Show us the unseen. Go boldly before that throne of grace. And so back to the text, he strikes him with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha, verse 19. 
So the army, I mean, this is, yeah, it's almost comical. The, The whole army, you know, they're rushing down to come into the city, and Elisha throws up like a 10-second prayer. And all of a sudden, their chariots are wrecking into each other. Guys are falling around. They're groping. They don't, they don't know what's going on. The, probably the people in Dothan are wondering what in the world's going on. And so when, when that enemy army finally just calms down, Elisha, he gets sneaky with them. They can't see him. They wouldn't know what he looked like back then. There was no Google back then. They couldn't have Googled Elijah the pro- Elisha the prophet. Oh, that's him. You know, it, it wasn't like that. And so... They go into the city, they're now blind, and Elisha walks up and said, <clears throat> who are y'all looking for? Well, we're here for, where'd you go, sir? We're here for Elisha the prophet. And Elisha says, oh, man, you know, he's not here. You're actually in the wrong place. But look, you guys look like you're pretty jacked up for business here. So how about I take you to where he is? I just see Elisha's servant saying, oh, man, this is going to be good. This is going to be so good. This is going to be great. And so they move and they go to the capital city. They go to Samaria. I mean, you just think of what that might have looked like. I mean, you've got the prophet of God. They were just sent down there with one objective, kill Elisha. And now, you know, I just see it cinematically. You, you pan backwards. Elisha's at the front of the line. Come on, guys. Come on. Just put your hands on each other's shoulders. I'll get you there. Come on, fellas. Come on. And he's leading them like a, a bunch of kindergartners. And he's taking them to the capital city where the king of Israel sits on the throne. Maybe you're not as carnal as me, but I just really like that. <laughs> so verse number 20, as soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, Oh Lord, now open their eyes so that they may see. And so the Lord opened their eyes and saw, and man, they had to changed their underpants. I mean, they were right there in the middle of the city. They're in Samaria. And they're saying, oh, we are in trouble. Because now they're walled up in the city of the ones that they had made war with. Elisha just kept his cool. I just love the fact that in the midst of an impossible situation, Elisha just kept talking to God. Lord, he's not seeing what you've shown me. Will you open his eyes? Lord, they're seeing things that are inaccurate. They're coming to kill me. Lord, just will you blind them, please? And then he leads them to the city. He's like, Lord, I really want them to see what you've done in this thing. So now will you open their eye? So Elisha's just like, I mean, he's like a spiritual optometrist. He's just opening eyes, shutting eyes, opening eyes, shutting eyes. That's just powerful. I mean, that, that just emboldens me. And I'm like, why am I? not praying like that. I don't even feel like I've got anybody gunning after me. If I'm not seeing what I need to see, you can let me know, but I don't feel like I've got anybody gunning after me. I want that kind of prayer life. And I don't think it's forbidden from us in Scripture. I actually think it's offered to us in Scripture. And so Elisha did not fear, friends. Elisha did not flee. Elisha did not even fight. Elisha focused. And when there are elements in your life that could cause you fear, when you're in a decision-making season, you need to see what God sees. And if you aren't seeing what God sees and you don't know that you're seeing what God sees, I want to recommend something. Don't fight what you can't see. You are not living a pinata party. People get hurt when you start swinging a stick and you don't know what you're swinging at. And don't flee. 
Don't run to safer pastures because I'm going to tell you something. If God's not looking at that place you're running to, it's not safe. But focus. What does that mean? Get still, get small. Get into the presence of the Lord and let him hear your voice and then wait there as long as you need to until you hear his. Um, what's really interesting, let me just show you something here real quick. Well, nothing's real quick about this message, but let me give you this. When I, when I was painting the picture of Elisha at the kitchen window doing the dishes and he, he prays for the servant to have his eyes open, just talk back to me. I'll know you're away. What did the servant see that he hadn't been seeing? Just say it in your, however you want. Yeah, chariots of fire. In other words, the servant saw that God was bigger than the enemy. Yeah, chariots of fire and this, this clear battle strategy. You know what's interesting to me? Is those chariots of fire and those heavenly warriors never even got involved. God didn't need the heavenly angels, the chariots of fire and all that. Well, then why did they show up? It was simply to remind the servant of Elisha that God is present, that he's there. When you can't see him, he's there. When you don't sense his movements, when you can't discern his right hand, he's moving, he's working. And the Lord will often work through you. We don't need myriads of angels to come rushing into our every situation. Sometimes God says, I don't want to send angelic help. I don't need to do something robustly supernatural or impressive. I'm just going to empower you to have wisdom to see what you need to see. And then I want you, ooh, I want you to operate in faith. I want you to move out in faith. You don't have to have this flamboyant, massive stuff all the time. Sometimes God says, how about I work one-on-one with you, and I open your eyes to some things, and you start walking in that, and I'll, I'll just take care of the battles alongside of you, me and you, and we'll let the angels do something else today. I feel like maybe I'm preaching to Jeff Lyle today, but he's enjoying it, amen? So Elisha then, okay, I am almost out of verses, so here we go. Elisha saw how to handle the emergency. He also saw how to handle his enemy. And here's where some temptation comes in. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, my father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He's really saying, please let me. He's really saying, I've been waiting on this. I don't even have to get the, the, the swords out of the armory my enemy has now come to me. And so he's saying, I'd like to get in on this victory. I want to get in on what God's doing spiritually, and I want to wrap it up in my flesh. That's the temptation. God starts moving spiritually, and we want to get our little grimy paws all over it. And the king wanted to do that. It was an opportunity to act in the flesh, but Elisha wasn't going to play. Verse 22, he answered, no, you shall not strike them down. And then he appeals to the normal regulations of war. He said, would you strike down those that you took captive with your sword and with your bow? Would you kill your POWs in a normal warfare? No. And look at what he says to do. He says, set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. And so verse 23, he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and went away to their master. You realize that God works a lot of times counterintuitively to the people around you, right? In other words, you're going to have people around you 
that have told you the right way to do things, that have told you how it ought to be done, who have framed up your perspectives in the kingdom of God or life or marriage or being a young adult. Or, there are people, we, we are bombarded with voices. We have been our whole life. So you've probably, me and you both have probably never had an original thought in our whole life because we're so impacted by other people's uh, uh, statements into our lives. So here comes the king. But I love this, by the way. The king was kind of energetic, but he, he, he regards the prophet. And he says, my father, please let me kill these guys. Please, please let me do it. And Elisha says, no. And then he gives some instructions, and the king listened to him. I don't know what's going to happen in November. I'm going to give a quick commentary. All I know is that um, as, as one individual American voter, when I cast my vote, I want to see what God's saying. I want to see what the Lord is saying. You say, Jeff, is he interested in that stuff? Well, is he interested in his people? We're his people, so he's interested in our lives. So, yeah, he's interested in it. We, we need to see some things, friends. We need to see what's going on in our nation. We need to see because I'm going to tell you something. Uh, somebody's going to take us into the next leg of the American race. And that decision that we all make collectively as voters in November, it's going to have a big impact. And so I hope that we can see what's the most important thing because there's no perfect candidate. I didn't intend to say any of this, but I'm going to. There is no perfect candidate. So we need to find out not only what is the Lord seeing, but what is he seeing at the top of his list as the most important thing. And we vote accordingly. This king listened to the prophet. And the prophet said, throw them a feast. They've been through a lot. These poor boys came down here on a mission. They got struck with blindness. I had to lead them like kindergartners all the way to the city. They're embarrassed. They're afraid. Let's just give them some food and let them go back home to mama. I wonder if Paul was thinking about that when he wrote in Romans 12, this verse will be up on your screen, these verses. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And to the contrary, watch this, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Jesus taught that. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals over on his head. And do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, the temptation was for Elisha in the climax of a pretty intense radical spiritual victory. The temptation right at the end of that victory was to finish it off with an exclamation point in the flesh instead of just letting God handle the whole thing. Mm, that is a word right now. I, I just believe in this congregation. You just forgive me. I'm going to put on the prophet's mantle for a minute. I believe in this congregation there are people that are being right up against the edge of making important decisions, and you've let the Lord lead the whole way, but you're getting impatient at the end, and you're about to make a decision in the flesh where God has been leading you spiritually, but you won't let him finish what he began. I just I counsel you for the glory of Jesus and for your own good. Wait for it. Habakkuk said, wait for the vision. It's got an appointed time. It, it may tarry, but you wait for it. Nobody's ever said, man, I'm so glad I was hasty. 
So glad I got impatient. So we're told to leave even our enemies to the Lord. And then so at the very end, and I am done, Elisha got to see how God wins the battle. He fed them and he sent them back home. And the Bible says the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. So that means they, I don't know what it looked like when they got back. I'd hate to have been the general of that army. They're coming back in the city. The king of Syria is on his royal throne. He's scouting it out. Well, they must have killed him. I don't see an Israelite prophet. They must have killed him. So they come up into the palace. They go into the war room. And the king says, so how did it go, fellas? Awkward looks around the room. And, uh, well, the journey there was great, go king. We surrounded Dothan. We came in by stealth at night, and everything was working greatly. But as we went to get Elisha, we lost our sight. He led us by the hand into the city of Samaria. They chose not to kill us, but King, it wasn't all bad because we got some killer kosher food before we left. It was so good. And then uh, they had to go back home. There was probably no more humiliating thing. It, w- it would have been more honorable in their eyes for the Syrians if they had been killed in battle than to be sent home well-fed and have to report that they couldn't kill one dude. They just had to kill one guy, and they couldn't do it. Why? Because that one guy saw the God of heaven, and the God of heaven that he saw enabled that one guy to see what God was seeing, and together in a holy abiding of unity, Elisha the prophet had God's perspective on life, on national Israel, on a deep, deep conflict. And because Elisha moved in concert with God Almighty, Elisha saw how God wins battles. And so friends, whatever is going on in your individual life, with all of the things going on in this assembly, this is a great season for these people that are comprising Meadow as we move into New Bridge. There are going to be battles. The enemy is going to move. There's going to be attacks, but never let it be said that any attack came from me or came from you. Let the devil fight us, but we will not fight each other. We will move in and we will begin in the spirit, excuse me, end in the spirit what God began in the spirit. Why? Because there's all sorts of people in our city that God wants us to defend. There's all sorts of people in our city who are like that servant that can't see what God wants them to see. And so he wants us to be the intercessors. He wants us to be the messengers. He wants us to be the ambassadors. He wants us to represent him. In a day where people are saying the God of the Christians is no longer relevant, God wants to show again before the last coming, the second coming of Jesus, God wants to show his love, his mercy, his grace to people. And he'll show it through the church of Jesus Christ. He'll show it to the degree that you and I are unified in him. Everybody's got a part to play in this. Let's stand to our feet this morning.